Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and today's episode is a creepy one. You guys know I love my creepy, I love my spooky, I am a Scorpio through and through, and I guess maybe not through and through. To be honest, I feel like there's some qualities of Scorpios that I really do not identify with and don't think reflect me at all, but one pretty essential part of the Scorpio is creepy spooky, and that part I do. So I, I pick bits and pieces from Scorpio uh, that I identify with. And although it's not even remotely close to Halloween right now, it's really probably the least spooky time of year, <laughs> spring. It's like, you know, a cute, happy-go-lucky time. Um, I decided I want to talk about some creepy spooky stuff today. I'm going to talk about true crime, the obsession that many of us have with crime television, podcasts, and how in a twisted way, this sort of entertainment can actually help us relax, help us experience a release after a long work day. I quite literally look forward to closing my laptop and then opening it again. Basically, I close it because I'm like, okay, I'm done with work. And then I'm like, wait a second, I want to watch my my TV because I don't have a TV yet. (laughs) So I'm still working on that. I'm like taking forever with certain pieces. I'm just debating on which TV I want for the space. So I'm still using my laptop to watch TV. I'm definitely still watching my shows. Don't worry. So I open my laptop again. I'm like, amazing. It's time for me to watch one of my (laughs) devastating TV shows. And I say that because they're about very sad terrifying concepts and yet I'm so into it and I want like I crave these shows specifically like SVU, Criminal Minds, things like that. Like I crave those shows as well as obviously the podcast realm of things. I love Crime Junkie. I love My Favorite Murder. There's a bunch of different true crime related podcasts I also love. Crime Junkie, I literally am so obsessed with it. I've been listening to it since before my corporate job because I would sit down and listen to it every week. It would literally get me through my corporate job when I was having a rough time. I'd be like sitting at my desk, like answering emails about makeup products, listening to an axe murder unfold. Like, let me know. Am I okay? I love Crime Junkie. I love a bunch of different crime-related podcasts. There's so many out there now. I think Crime Junkie's actually inched its way up to like the top charts. It's like, I think the second most listened to podcast or something like that. It always fluctuates, but really proud of them. They do a great job. Their research is spot on. They do a great job. Anyway, so all of this, all of this entertainment that I've been indulging in has made me think about the how and the why behind our crime entertainment obsession. How can we be these law-abiding citizens with real jobs and real lives and just crave this 
this destruction, like listening and watching these shows and just seeing all of this, this horrible stuff unfold. And why do we, why do we care? Why do we like it? And why or how can it cause us to find some, some peace in a weird way? Like we have an obsession. There are literally over 10, like probably 10 to 15 movies and TV series, not to mention the thousands of news segments all about just one serial killer, Ted Bundy, AKA a guy that murdered at least 30 people in the seventies. And it just interests me how we keep putting out this content, this entertainment. What is our obsession with it? And also, why do some people take things even further, too far, and fall in love with serial killers? How can one literally fall in love with someone who has confessed slash been convicted of murder? Like, how is it possible? So we're going to talk about all of those things today on the pod. And I have to say, when I was researching this episode yesterday, (laughs) it's just like a very classic thing that would happen to only me. I'm researching away, typing away, like, you know, drafting some notes and, and getting all the facts down. And all of a sudden, my, the space key on my computer stops working. Like I'm clicking it frantically and it's like not doing anything. It's not causing any spaces to occur. And I was like, you're kidding me. I didn't realize in that until that very moment that the space key is actually totally essential. Like you cannot write a sentence without a space key on your computer. Like you you simply cannot. So yeah, I was actually, while I was walking myself to the Apple store to get it fixed, I like frantically called Apple, frantically ran out the door, like in the rain, like with my laptop, I'm an idiot. Anyway, I was thinking on the walk over, like what are the most essential keys on the keyboard? And I think number one has got to be the space key. I mean, aside from like the on button, but like keys wise, I think the space key and then the period is really important. And then I guess like, yeah, the punctuation keys are really important as well. But anyway, walked myself over to the Apple store. I get up to the genius area upstairs. I open my laptop in front of the the guy, like the guy is sitting across from me and I open it up and like show him. He's like, can you demonstrate how the key isn't working? Open up my laptop. Like the first thing that pops up on my screen after I log in is, (laughs) guys, I'm so embarrassed. Like I'm sitting there. I'm like so embarrassed. I mean, it could have been worse. It could have been like porn or something. Okay. Like it wasn't that bad, but it was a string of articles, a slew of tabs about serial killers. The, The first one that was up was this like Reddit confession post where this girl is like, I fell in love with a serial killer. And it's like in huge letters at the top. And it's like her confession of like how she fell in love with this guy that killed people or something. And I have it just like up. And then I have to close out that tab. And I I do a stupid thing, right? I should have just closed the whole browser. But I just go tab by tab. And each one is like a different serial killer related tab. Like it's like how the psychology behind loving someone that kills or things like that. And I'm like, this guy is definitely like this girl is whack calling 911 under the table like this guy is probably going through it in his head trying to think like who the heck is this person so I like literally come in and like probably the most girly outfit like have a scrunchie in my hair and he's like this girl is up to something (laughs) so anyway I had to explain to him that I have a podcast where I tell stories and he was like 
I don't know if he actually bought it. I feel like he didn't. Um, but anyway, that is uh, what went into researching this episode. And I, I came up with a bunch of stuff, a bunch of not so much justifications necessarily, but a lot of information, a lot of insight as to why we are obsessed with crime, TV, and entertainment, and how someone can literally fall in love with a serial killer. So that and more on today's episode of Thick and Thin. Okay, so while I was researching, I came up with about four different pillars, so to speak, of why we as normal law-abiding citizens of the world that have likely never committed a crime nor will ever commit a crime, why slash how can we love crime entertainment? And so I came up with four different vague, but we'll go into it, reasons. Number one, the adrenaline rush. You know, obviously when we feel, especially in certain entertainment pieces that we're in the story, we feel the adrenaline that the the person about to be killed feels, the person that is doing the killing feels like we are, we are in that mindset. And number two, it also, it activates our imagination and the feeling of solving a puzzle. Number three, our survival instincts kick in. So... Obviously, there's a lot of evolutionary stuff involved there, which we'll get into. Number four, curiosity and fascination with good versus evil. I think the last one and the second one are my main my main reasons. I love solving the puzzle of like figuring out who did it, especially in criminal minds. They make it really hard to figure it out until like the very end. So I really love that element. And then I also love just, I I have this fascination with how someone can be like be evil. And a lot of times in criminal minds in crime junkie, they'll go into how the person was raised. Like ultimately when they figure out the killer, they will go into their childhood and identify a reason for why they did this horrible thing. And it doesn't necessarily like bring me peace or anything, but it definitely just I, – I really do have a fascination with human human just happenings and human ways, how people solve problems. Like I'm really into that stuff. I really should have been a psych major in college, I'm realizing, but alas, I do enough uh, studying here on the podcast. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, so I'm going to link to a Psychology Today article in the show notes that speaks more to the evolution element, but here's a little snippet that we're going to discuss. So here's what it says. Evolution has sharpened humans' survival instincts to the point where it feels natural and sometimes enjoyable to, well, survive. Even from a young age, we enjoy exercising our survival instincts and homing in on fear in a safe environment. Matthias Clayson, a researcher who focuses on our paradoxical fascination with horror, points to the game of hide and seek. 
As an example of this in our childhood, this, quote, simulation of predator-prey interaction, as he calls it, is one of the many ways that we enjoy the thrill of surviving danger because we know it's not a real threat. Crime-based entertainment is made to activate our survival instincts in the same way that a game of hide-and-seek might activate them in children. As a result, we enjoy our, quote, close calls with danger as we experience the stories unfolding before us. So that kind of, that goes into the survival instincts element number three, and also the adrenaline rush, because as we're consuming the content, as we imagine that we're in it, like have you ever found yourself just totally wrapped up in watching a show or movie and you feel like you're in it? The same thing happens when I read books. I really lose the rest of the world for a second. I lose all the things that are stressing me out in real life and I focus on the stress of another person. Like I really enjoy other people's stress in like book form, in movie form, in podcast form because it isn't personal. It isn't mine. And so it feels like an escape for like 15 minutes or okay, podcasts are like more like an hour now, but you know, it like feels like a little escape from whatever I'm personally going through and it's refreshing. And that is the reason why I feel like I experience a significant release when I'm consuming content like this because it consumes my whole brain also. I can't just sit there and like let it pour over me. I need to be like in it. I need to be focusing, figuring out who did it, like unraveling that secret, solving the puzzle, that sort of thing. So that's that's my theory on it all. While I was looking into fear-based entertainment, I stumbled across a scientific article about roller coasters. Yes, roller coasters. So back in 2016, this guy named Malcolm Burt set out to find out why roller coasters mean so much to those who love them. So here's what he said in his article, and I'll have that one linked as well. We'll talk about it. Roller coasters are enduring icons of Western pop culture and are a strong visual symbol of amusement and entertainment in many Western countries worldwide. Yet what drives so many paying patrons to make the journey to theme parks to spend substantial amounts of money to wait sometimes two to three hours for a 90-second ride to nowhere? The study reveals that roller coasters have a more complex impact on society than what may first appear. They serve as a centerpiece to a dedicated community of roller coaster enthusiasts, offer us a way to automatically focus our attention and allow us to safely experience extreme forces and unusual sensations that cannot be encountered safely elsewhere in daily life. So basically a roller coaster in a nutshell is kind of this controlled, mostly safe, well, like basically they're all technically safe, but you know, things happen. Mostly safe, but fleeting fear, like fleeting little moments, like the butterflies in your stomach going down a, a dip fear. And then before you know it, it's over. And then you're back to reality. And you spent two and a half hours in line waiting for a 90 second dose of fear that's controlled and safe, technically. So basically, I think the emotions that someone gets on a roller coaster is very, very similar to how it feels to watch crime TV, to listen to crime podcasts, things like that, you know, watching these stories unfold, figuring out who did it. Like it really does give you that little adrenaline kick where you feel like you're in it and you're solving this puzzle and, you know, you are 
the FBI trying to figure things out and like you you feel like you're in it. And so they do they they kind of overwhelm our senses, but in small enough doses that it isn't lasting, like it doesn't affect us for well, some things really do affect me for like weeks on end. I think of certain cases that are purely fictional, a lot of them, like the ones on crime, you know, TV shows, a lot of which th- those are mostly fabricated. A lot of them are based on true events, but they're mostly fake. And then, you know, even just the crime episodes I listen to, the true crime episodes I listen to really do, you know, last with me. They stick with me for weeks. But for the most part, a lot of them are just, you know, fleeting episodes that I watch because they're mostly about fake people. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was really crazy for the 30, 40 minutes I just experienced listening to this, but now I'm on with doing my mundane life tasks. Like I'll, like I said earlier, when I'm, you know, sitting at my desk at my corporate job, listening to an axe murder while I'm doing a mundane emailing task. So it's just interesting how you can really blend it. And it gives you that rush for that given amount of time. And then you're like, okay, on with the next mundane task. Like, let me just do my laundry now after listening to that. And it's, you know, sometimes it makes me feel guilty that I can just listen to this episode and then move on with my life like nothing happened. But truly, if you think about entertainment, a lot of the TV and movies that we watch, even the ones not related to crime, and murder and things like that, a lot of them have to do with these really crazy stories that should kind of upset us for a few moments. And we should feel that emotion. And then, yeah, we do move on with our lives and we do pick our heads up and not think about it maybe, or that we think about it or, you know, whatever we do with it, but we we choose how we kind of move on. But I think that feeling those emotions, like seeing, watching things that aren't just happy-go-lucky all the time, watching shows and reading books and listening to things that really make us think about injustice, about things that are scary and sad and painful, like I think it's really good for our growth, honestly. And Crime Junkie Podcast especially, I love it because they always have, like nowadays more so than their earlier episodes, but they always have this like takeaway at the end now where they're like, here's why, you know, you need to be safe in these environments or like, here's how to prevent yourself from having this happen to you, things like that. So I feel like I'm learning as I go with these things. But anyway, so carrying on with our discussion, going to crank things up a notch, talk about something extremely bizarre and disgusting, honestly. So if subjects surrounding death, murder, rape, things like that really trigger you, flip off this episode now because we're going to get into just the bizarre psychology behind how someone can fall in love with a serial killer, get totally brainwashed by a serial killer, and somehow like just sitting in their normal law-abiding lives in the suburbs, get caught up in this love affair with a guy that's behind bars for killing people. Like how is it possible? We're going to talk about that today. So there is one case, one really bizarre case that's so sad and horrific. Um, You know, I've listened to a lot of different episodes. I've watched a lot of different shows of fictional, but based on true life crime. And there's this one case from the 70s that I will truly never forget. And so the killers involved in this, they were nicknamed the Hillside Stranglers by the press. And their names were Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr. And they kidnapped, raped, and tortured 10 women and girls ranging 
ranging in age from 12 to 28 years old in the LA area. So the two men, Kenneth and Angelo, they were cousins and they were sentenced to life in prison for their horrible crimes. And I won't go into detail about the case. You should definitely listen to the Crime Junkies episode or there's a million other different tellings of this story, which is horrendous. But, you know, I won't go into detail, but the the most interesting of all the details in my mind came actually after the men were identified as the killers. So during the two years leading up to their trial, they were like sitting, waiting trial for two years. And while they were doing so, one of the killers, Kenneth Bianchi, formed a relationship with a woman named Veronica Lynn Compton. So he was behind bars and developed this relationship with Veronica. And she was a 20-something-year-old actress and playwright with a serial killer obsession. So they started dating while Kenneth was in prison or about to be in prison, like he was waiting at trial, but it wasn't looking good for him. And he would likely be there for the rest of his life after killing 10 women. So basically Veronica was in love with the guy. She sent him a copy of a gruesome screenplay that she had written called The Mutilated Cutter, which was about a female serial killer. And he was she was basically asking for his thoughts on her screenplay, like on the subject, which was literally about a female serial killer. So from that point on, Veronica grew overwhelmingly obsessed with Kenneth and he used her twisted fixation with him to his advantage, convincing her basically into doing a little favor for him outside of the prison walls. So Kenneth manipulated Veronica into copycatting one of his murders. So basically going through with one of his murders, like in a similar style to how he had done it, in hopes that it would convince everyone that the killer was still out there running rampant, causing destruction. So he instructed her, Veronica, to basically lure a woman into a hotel room and strangle her. And the weirdest, most disgusting, creepy part of this is he actually managed to smuggle out some of his own semen in either like a, a condom or a rubber, I think a rubber glove to place at the scene. So Veronica was to strangle the woman, put his DNA at the scene basically, uh, which is confusing because like I just said, he was hoping that it would convince everyone that the, the, the real killer was out there and he was innocent, but essentially he instructed her to put his DNA at the scene, which is very confusing. But this guy was not the brightest crayon in the box, the sharpest tool in the shed for sure. So... Anyway, Veronica tried her very best because she was in love with this guy. So using the alias Karen, Veronica chose her victim, who was a 26-year-old named Kim Breed. And she found Kim in a tavern around 10 p.m. at night. And after a night of partying with Kim, Veronica basically invited her to have a nightcap drink in her hotel room or her motel room at the Shangri-La Motel, which was where she was staying. And Kim was like, sure, this girl doesn't seem threatening at all. Note to self, don't go back to some girl's random hotel room or motel room or hotel room. Anyway, Veronica basically then bound and attempted to kill, like strangle and kill Kim. But after a struggle, her almost victim escaped and called a friend got out of there, reported her, all the things. So basically she overpowered Veronica, which definitely wasn't a part of Veronica's plan. So she panicked and fled, hopping on a flight to San Francisco. However, though, once she arrived 
and San Francisco, the airport, she became hysterical and caused a total scene, like was just so either overwhelmed by the failure and having to confess to her boyfriend slash I think they got married so they're her her significant other her lover behind bars that she had failed him basically or maybe she just realized how horrible it was what she had tried to do and how like maybe she just like snapped to her senses like I'm not really sure but essentially she caused a scene and apparently also she had sent a letter and a tape to authorities claiming that Kenneth was completely innocent and attempted to explain that Due to the strangling attempt, which she wasn't yet blamed for, the real hillside strangler was still on the loose. Like, okay, not convincing at all. This was obviously disproven, and Veronica was arrested. She was sentenced to prison with no chance of parole until 1994, which honestly, I I don't know who is who is dumber here, Kenneth or his horrible plan of like planting his own DNA at the scene or Veronica for first of all like going in there with no backup plan like just not being a good murderer and then also going to prison now for this random dude that she doesn't even know like she literally is going to prison for years and years of her life with no chance of parole for this guy that she barely knows like she went along with this horrible plan like I can't tell or can't figure out in my head who's dumber but Anyway, so Kenneth continued to write to Veronica while she was in prison now. He was still there, obviously. He was going to be there for life, but Veronica was only going to be there for a few years or however long. But Veronica actually lost interest in him and fell in love with another serial killer named Douglas Daniel Clark, who, along with his wife, Carol, killed and decapitated seven women in Los Angeles. So Douglas was also sentenced Uh, to life in prison. He was actually going on death row. And so, very classic, um, Douglas had actually sent Veronica a really special Valentine's Day style card with a photo of a headless female corpse and that started their relationship, I guess. They began to write to each other until sometime in 1988. So in 2003, Veronica finally was released from prison Um, She was there for at least a decade, if my calculations are correct, if not more. So yeah, she finished her her prison sentence. She hasn't been heard of since. And honestly, I'm a bit nervous about what Veronica, our girl, is up to these days because, I mean, just her, her history of dealing with these serial killers and like somehow normalizing the fact that her lovers were killers. Like, I really don't know what this girl is up to. I hope someone has some eyes on her. Um, but imagine marrying someone And then finding out, like marrying Veronica, some dude out there marrying Veronica and then finding out that they have this like secret obsession with serial killers and like had literal relationships with them. Like, would that be a red flag or a deal breaker for you? I sincerely hope a deal breaker. But why? Why do people like Veronica exist? A woman named Sheila Eisenberg is the author of a book called Women Who Love Men Who Kill. And for her research, she spoke with dozens of women who had similar relationships with murder, similar to Veronica. And so she found two patterns in these women's desires to become romantically involved with killers. Number one, they wanted to share the killer's spotlight and become infamous themselves. 
Number two, they truly believed the killer to be innocent, which I think is more crazy. Um, And she said they were deluded that the man had not committed the crimes. And when I was reading this, I honestly had this like aha moment not a great aha moment. It's definitely not a great concept that I drew a parallel to from this, but there are some scary similarities between women who believe they're murdering boyfriends to be innocent despite heaps and heaps of solid evidence, literal DNA evidence, and people who believe their cheating partners are innocent. Like, obviously different cheating and killing are different, but still, like, I feel like there's similar interior thought processes that go along or that go on, I guess, between people that forgive or not forgive, but try to justify someone to be innocent despite literal factual evidence and people that believe their cheating partners did not cheat, although there is literal factual evidence. So just interesting. Why are we like this? Why do we try and defend bad people? Period. Why do we do it? Well, sometimes it's a better choice than being totally alone. And, you know, if you're emotionally invested, you think that they can change. You think you can change them. That's a big reason why people stay with cheaters, why people justify murderers or not justify, but try to just convince themselves and everyone else that they're innocent. (laughs) It's sad, but it's increasingly common. So, Anyway, back to the serial killer romance subject. There are a few different buzz phrases slash concepts that I came upon while researching that kind of explain all of this a bit better. So two different like complexes, so to speak. Number one, the savior complex. So this is a big one, aka it's the the need to heal or save damaged people. So maybe a really kind, soft person would want to become involved with a hard, menacing serial killer because they feel that they can save them. They can save a damaged person. That's another reason why a lot of people stay with their abusers, things like that. Number two, I actually heard about this one on Crime Junkie podcast. It's called hybristophilia, also known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, which is the sexual attraction to people who have committed some sort of outrage or crime. So it's a literal kind of fetish of sorts. So a little story from history that is really messed up, but each day of convicted serial killer Ted Bundy's trial, a group of women would show up to the courtroom with their hair parted down the middle, wearing hoop earrings. And eerily enough, this was the exact style of hair and jewelry worn by most of Ted Bundy's victims. Some of the women even dyed their hair brown to match the hair of those he murdered. And this man had tortured and killed 30 people. It's an absolutely absurd and disgusting obsession. Like, what were these women thinking? It was so bizarre. But they had this obsession. I don't think that maybe these women thought they could save people or like they didn't have the the savior complex element. I think that they kind of wanted to ride off a ride on the wave of Ted Bundy's fame and be the one that he picked because he had all these groupies. So they wanted to be the one that he picked, which is so bizarre, but reflects probably some other trauma in these women's lives, not justifying them. It's bizarre what they did, but there's probably some reasons for that. Anyway, so on My Favorite Murder, which is another true crime podcast, 
hosts Karen and Georgia believe that the reason behind hybristophilia, which like I said earlier, Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, and the savior complex isn't an obsession with serial killers, but an obsession with stories. So serial killers are often painted as the loners, the bullied ones, the wallflowers, the ones that are hiding out in the outskirts until they decide to flip a switch and then come into the foreground bigger and louder and scarier than ever before. So they find this twisted sort of confidence, serial killers do, that maybe some quieter, softer women are attracted to. And so they decide to gloss over, these women decide to gloss over the horrible, destructive pieces of this killer's story and only find love for their they're more relatable bits. So how they were loners, they were bullied, they were wallflowers. Like there's literal forums, guys, about the Columbine killers, the shooters in Columbine, which was a horrible tragedy in a school. If you guys are aware, I'm I'm sure many people are aware of this story. It was a horrible tragedy. But people have forums dedicated to the Columbine shooters and they literally make like fan fiction based on it's so twisted but people really latch on to the fact that these these boys were quote bullied although more recent facts have come out that kind of prove that they were the bullies like the story was kind of twisted to show them as loners and bullied people but they weren't necessarily so people become very obsessed with stories and i think they also believe everything they read and maybe they try to read between the lines a bit more than they should so you know, women especially, of course, men do it as well. I don't want to say that just women fall in love with serial killers, but there's a statistic out there that I did read that I didn't write down that said that women fall prey to this more often than men. Like women become obsessed with trying to fix people because it is in our nature. Despite what we've become today, it is kind of in our our deep-rooted evolutionary nature to want to nurture. It is a thing. Um, but anyway, so it's it's twisted, but it's much more common than you think. And kind of in a, a different mindset of this, I think that some of these women probably even feel that they aren't deserving of someone better than a serial killer. Like they think that they are damaged in some way, which is really sad, but like they feel as though they're damaged. They are not deserving of someone better than someone who has literally killed people and so they feel this like this similarity to the men behind bars because these men are obviously damaged as well or like something has happened to them and they feel like they can relate in a very, very, very twisted way. And there's also very little risk involved with dating a serial killer, dating someone behind bars who is literally, for the most part, in jail for life. Like they're sentenced to life in prison basically. So there's really no chance they'll get out and will be able to pursue a normal relationship. So the women can fantasize all they want. The men can paint them pictures and write them letters and like give them the romance without the anxiety involved in like actually going on a date with a person. Like being a pen pal is a lot easier sometimes for some people than having to consider what could actually unfold if things were real. So the women can fantasize. But regardless of the reason, I find it all extremely bizarre. Like I had to stop multiple times while researching just to say to myself, I can't believe this. Like that's crazy that people can actually be like that, can actually fantasize about this, can actually like 
write love letters, guys, like full on love letters to convicted criminals. Like just cannot wrap my head around it, but I guess, you know, there are a lot of different people out there and, you know, I can't always wrap my head around everything, but nonetheless, I'm interested by it all. I'm interested by the human nature element of it, the human um, motivation to want to save people, to want to fix people, to want to believe that someone is innocent when they're just not. And all evidence points to they're not. Like, it's just so crazy to me, all of this. And so that is why I decided to look into crime related fascinations today. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Didn't think it was uh, too spooky for for May. I feel like it's like, again, the least spooky time of year. It's like so cute and spring right now. And I'm like, let me talk about something dark and twisted today. Get ready for it. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the podcast or maybe not enjoyed, but just like thought it was interesting, found something, a little tidbit or two from this and are like, wow, that's really interesting food for thought. I'm going to keep that with me and think about it. That's always my goal with these. And yeah, I'm going to come back with a lighter episode next week. Don't you worry about that. But anyway, uh, that's it for the episode, guys. Definitely, if you have recommendations for me of different TV, movies, things I haven't mentioned in the podcast today, or even just other podcasts, like literally anything I didn't mention entertainment-wise that you think I'd be interested in, please DM it to me. I love when you guys give me suggestions. Like it really, truly means the world because I get so kind of tunnel visioned into the things that I like enjoying and watching and I end up watching the same series like over and over again versus just like watching something new. So definitely share whatever you guys are enjoying in in the crime spooky creepy realm with me. You guys know I love it and I will talk to you guys all next week. Bye. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.